to It's Lit, where all things literary live at the root. I'm Danielle Belton, the Roots Editor-in-Chief, here with the Managing Editor of The Glow Up, Maisha Kai. Hey, everybody. Maisha, today we have an amazing guest on the show, the brilliant Zerlina Maxwell. Zerlina is a political analyst, director of progressive programming for Sirius XM, co-host of Sirius XM's award-winning show, Signal Boost, and the host of her own news show on Peacock, Zerlina. She's also, we can say quite proudly, a 2020 Route 100 honoree. In addition to all these amazing things, Zerlina is also an author. Her new book is called The End of White Politics, How to Heal Our Liberal Divide. And she joined us recently to talk about it. You know, brilliant is probably an understatement when it comes to Zerlina. First of all, I don't know how she gets it all done. And I say that as a pretty busy person talking to an even busier person. Um, But she gets it all done. You know, I think what's so appealing about her and why she has so much success is that she's so relatable. You know, she's really not ever talking down to us with all this brilliance. You know, she's really laying things out really plainly and in some ways telling us things I think a lot of us intuit, those of us who are open to that kind of intuition, but in ways that really make it plain and illustrate exactly uh, what this huge impasse is we have here in America. And a lot of it is willful ignorance, but you know, I, I, I just, I love talking to her. I think she's just so fun and so cool and candid, you know? <laughs> yeah, and she's also just really super smart. So, yes. I mean, her political insights are amazing. So, absolutely. let's get to this interview and see what she has to say. <laughs> let's do it. <laughs> Hi, Zerlina. Welcome to It's Lit. Thank you for having me. Hello, Danielle. <laughs> I'm so excited to be here. <laughs> We're excited to have you, you know, and this excitement exists on so many different levels, but mostly because we're just really ready to talk about the end of white politics. Oh, I'm excited to talk about that, too. I mean, this year has been weird, uh, but it's made it oddly relevant. Definitely, Mm. definitely. But before we get into the end of white politics, which I'm all for, because It's Lit is a podcast focusing on Black books and writers, we like to start every episode by asking our guests to name at least one book that has been a game changer for them. It was life affirming. It was mind blowing. Like you didn't know a book could be this. What was that book or books for you? That is a hard question. Oh, God. Um, I'm trying to pick between Octavia Butler books. I'm like, I don't know how to do this question. Okay. um, Can I say a person who wrote many books? Sure. Octavia Butler. Definitely. But but even earlier than that, I mean, I think all of us, all of us would agree that James Baldwin changed the way that our brains thought about our existence in the world. And so maybe that even earlier, but just in terms of expanding my mind and and getting it to think about just what's even possible, that would be Octavia Butler. Like Parable of the Sower. Mm. Yes. Mm. You know, I just, yeah. I actually want to read, I want to reread that before we leave this situation that I don't think we're calling quarantine anymore, but whatever this is. Yeah. Whatever talk, this, speaking of relevant, house all the right? time situation it is. is. Yeah. Yeah. It's very relevant. <laughs> So, Zerlina, a lot of people probably know you as a pundit on MSNBC. Yes. As well as co-host of Signal Boost on Sirius XM or via your new show, Zerlina on Peacock. Girl, you got all the shows. All a the lot shows. of shifts. <laughs> <laughs> and we are proud to note that you are also a 2020 Route 100 honoree. 
Oh, that's exciting. I mean, I, I, yeah. I remember that. No, no, no. It was like that. That did happen because it's like in the fall, November. But it's because yeah. we, nothing at all has happened since November. But it's nothing. because we didn't get to do like the, you know, normally we didn't get to do the do. Right. Yeah, we, yeah, we didn't get to do the normal do. I know it was so sad. <laughs> it's true. We're going to have to have a whenever we're able to have a party again, we're going to have just a big party for the winners who didn't get to party the first time. <laughs> That's exactly right. Everyone's invited. Right. But, you know, in 2020, you also published your first book. The End of White Politics, How to Heal Our Liberal Divide, which came out in July of last year and was instantly labeled a must-read book of 2020 by Time Magazine and others. What a time to be <laughs> publishing a book on the intersection of American politics and race, especially since, as we now know, the climate has only grown more contentious in the months since you published. And as you noted, your first book ended up being deeply relevant how do you feel about the timing? And is there any argument you might have amended or added to, given how things have unfolded since? Good question. Well, I had no idea what was going to happen in terms of the pandemic. But I think I I got a lot right about everything else. And I, I, I identified a couple of things. And I'm not the only one, right? I worked with Maya Harris, who wrote the seminal paper for the Center for American Progress in 2010 saying women of color are the voting block to watch. They're going to change American democracy and black women are, they, they vote in higher rates. <laughs> you know, they, they are participating and engaged. And when you invest in messaging and policies and in grassroots organizing directly to those communities, things can really change. I mean, that paper changed sort of how I viewed the future of American politics at the time. I was probably like blogging, I think back then in 20, like 2010 or whatever. But I feel like the idea that the American electorate is shifting and the demographics are shifting to a place where white voters will be the minority. We never had that before. And so I was like, well, let's see what that means. What does that mean for us? It's clear Republicans, they get it. They know. They're acting like they know that that what's coming in terms of the demographics. And so the book was sort of like, hey, Democrats, pay attention, because I think you're missing a very big opportunity. And particularly because you say that you stand for all of these things, like, let's live up to the value set. I didn't know the pandemic was going to make some of the arguments like so obvious <laughs> um, once we were sort of revealing some of the systemic flaws in the system, like day by day as we lived in the pandemic and the bottom dropped out for so many people. And I think it was an epiphany for a lot of folks. So it's weird to have been right about a lot and also have written an entire book right before the pandemic, right? Mm -hmm. And then mm -hmm. even after the pandemic, look back at the book and be like, oh, well, I was actually pretty right, even though <laughs> there's this big major thing happening that, you know, will change us all forever also. Um, the same mm -hmm. sort of flaws in the system are are still there. And they were just, they're just more obvious to everyone. I think it revealed a lot. Um, yes. yes. In terms of the arguments, I would say there's nothing I would change or update. I mean, I was pretty harsh on Joe Biden, but I still, yeah. I went back and I read, um, there were different moments where I would go back and read it. Like when he went on Charlemagne during the, uh, the campaign, like, and kind of flubbed that a bit. I went back and I read that chapter and I was like, 
I have a point. Um, and then, you know, when he won the election, I went back around the chapter and I was like, he picked Kamala Harris. I think maybe somebody read this chapter. <laughs> um, and, and, and I just, I think that the way that he's governing demonstrates so far, right? We're, we're right up on the halfway point or so to a mm-hmm. hundred days, which is an important sort of milestone in a president's first term. So, you know, I think the way that he's governing demonstrates that he understands some of the critiques in that chapter. I think it's harsh, and especially because he won and became the president, you know, it seems harsh in in hindsight, but I still kind of stand by that argument. So I don't know that I would change much. I think most of what I said is relevant as much as it was the day I wrote it, because so many of the things I was saying, it wasn't like, it wasn't theoretical. I was just, I, I think I'm pretty direct and and I think the clarity of it is is why it resonated. But I think it's also the clarity of it that makes it still true, even though we've been through so much. Definitely, definitely. And I mean, the pandemic did put ev- it put everything into like a clarity and perspective where it's not like it didn't change anything. Like racism, it you know it like enhanced it. Right. Like the pandemic was an enhancement <laughs> right. to everything that already existed. It exacerbated and s- pulled and pushed at things, but you know it didn't change shots. reality. <laughs> yeah, right. it was like, it just posted it up. Just yeah, a little thing. Yeah, you know. Yes. Yeah. It's not yes. what we want. We're probably going to need a booster shot. Speaking of oh booster shots, oh, definitely, but... probably for the rest of our lives. I think it's going to be like the flu. That's what my dad and I have been discussing this week. Um, and it's sort of been my obsession since the beginning of this. I was like, wait, is this going to be like, you know, nobody has immunity to it now, but, you know, eventually we may like the flu. Right. Is it going to be like that where you get your COVID and flu shot every year? I don't yeah. know. I'm not a scientist. So, <laughs> but I just ask one all the questions. There you go. <laughs> Now, your book opens up on this pivotal moment in your career when you appeared on a panel at Politicon in 2018 titled, What Now, Liberals? <laughs> what now? Um, yeah, what now? Uh, you were heckled so aggressively by Bernie Sanders supporters who were in the audience that you had to be escorted yeah. out by security. Yes, it was It was actually quite scary. I gotta be honest. I wasn't... I mean, I'm not saying that any of them were like saying violent things, but they were being very aggressive. It was an aggressive situation. Yeah, Mm -hmm. Yeah, like Bernie fans can be, you know, really aggro for a myriad of reasons. But that incident now almost seems benign in comparison to what we've seen in the past year. Absolutely. But it was indicative of the Achilles heel of progressive politics, a continued centering of white, predominantly male opinions and issues. Given everything that's happened since you published The End of White Politics, do you think progressives are any closer to learning their lesson? Well, I think if what just happened with the COVID relief bill is any indication, just just in terms of I had a a conversation this week with somebody who is going to benefit from the money going to black farmers or just thinking through how his executive orders, like every single federal agency is going to think through how they can be better on racial justice from every, like they're going to go through the books and just like line by line, figure out how they can be, have more of a racial justice lens or doing the same thing for voting access. Like it's a big deal if you go into a, you know, get your driver's license and at the same time you fill out the form for that, you get automatically registered to vote. Or uh, I think it was student loans, one of the examples. 
from the reporting about that executive order. And I just think that the intentionality is is a good sign um, mm-hmm. for this administration. And I think it shows a shift away from sort of the white male-centered consulting class, if you will. And that's good. That doesn't mean that those people still don't have things to contribute. Obviously, they do. They know a lot about maybe even things that I don't, right? Like, I don't know if I'd feel 100% comfortable in a rural West Virginia, right? But I think that understanding that there is kind of a generational shift happening in the Democratic Party, and that's why you see... I mean, even the fact that, like, Hakeem Jeffries is rising in the ranks of the Democratic Party, that's sort of a demonstration of the start of a shift because he's a little bit younger, right, than than many of the other uh, folks who have been representative in leadership of the party. But even the power growing of, you know, the progressive wing, the progressive caucus, the squad, I think that the future of the party looks like the squad. And the people who will Mm -hmm. elect them look like the squad. It's a coalition of people of different backgrounds. And we've, I didn't, I didn't think, I would never have like said like, oh yeah, George is going to turn blue in 2020. That was, I wasn't thinking that when I was, I don't even know. I, I have a whole (laughs) section. I talked to Stacey Abrams for the book. I have a whole section about Georgia, her strategy in Georgia. And it wasn't like just go to the black communities. It was go to all communities, but speak to the people where they are about the issues they care about, not what you think they care about. And so I knew that there was a shift happening in Georgia. I just couldn't have seen it happening so soon. So I think the Democrats, I think that shocked them a little bit. And I think uh, the next couple of years will be interesting to see if they go, you know, let's see what they do with the filibuster, for example. Then you're, that'll, that'll tell us a lot about whether or not they're about that life <laughs> or 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 whether or whether they're they're not really serious about progressive reforms and the filibuster could be an excuse not to do those big reforms but you know at the end of the day it's about keeping the coalition together the democratic party is a party that has bernie sanders and joe manchin that is the caucus so you have to figure out you know how to build power with those people, because that's that's the reality. So as much as, you know, progressives are frustrated with some of the moderates and the moderates are like, you guys are going too far. Like, that's what Herding Donkeys. Uh, Ari Berman had a book called Herding Donkeys. And I, I found that title so very apt. <laughs> BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. I mean, we do have this issue with, you know, it's like that the caller is coming from within the house, right? <laughs> you know, like, I mean, there are times that I wonder how many of the the type of Bernie bros that you described 
at the opening of the book, how many might have turned into Trump terrors in the meantime, because I'm just like, there is this unwillingness on all sides to kind of like do the work it takes to make the thing happen. You know, whether you want to call that compromise or whatever. And I don't necessarily think everything should be compromised, but, you know, you do call out, you know, some of those more rabid, obvious supporters. Uh, you know, Susan Sarandon gets it. I mean, you know, I was here for that. Um, but, you know, obviously he had quite a few incredible Black women mm-hmm. on the front lines of his campaigns as well. And I'm, I'm assuming that some of them are people you consider friends oh, yeah. and colleagues. How did they respond to this book? Well, I don't think, so many, I had a lot of Bernie supporters who have since sort of, maybe they were in the involved in the first campaign, but not in the mm-hmm. second. Mm-hmm. Like there are a lot, there are former black Bernie staffers who openly critique his first yeah. campaign that they worked on and his second campaign um, that they did not. And so, I mean, yeah, no, I'm friends with Simone. In fact, actually, at, <laughs> we at love the, Simone. Yeah. Yeah. Like actually at the, um, at the Democratic convention in 2016, I remember like seeing her across the room and we were like, Hey girl, I, we had never met, but it was like, all right, let's take a selfie and post it on Twitter because this is like, listen, Everybody needs to calm down. I mean, it didn't work, obviously, but I'm just, I feel like sometimes there's, there's not an acknowledgement of the fact that like, there's a little bit of nuance necessary as well. I mean, you know, just because I don't support every single thing that Bernie Sanders says does not make me like a shill. It's just, there is a middle ground. Like we don't have to agree on every single thing. And my main critique was a, just a lack of awareness of, of, how some of the messaging around class obscured the importance of race and and made everything about class when everything is not about class. Mm. <laughs> um, <laughs> right. So I was like, that's the obvious point. That's not, class you know. manifests too- differently based on race, as we know. Exactly. Yeah. It's like, you know, I, I just think that there was a failure to acknowledge that in the first campaign and in the second campaign... If I wrote this book now, I would include the ways in which he improved upon those things. Because in the second campaign, it was much better. And one thing I do think I want to credit his 2020 campaign with was their grassroots outreach in the Latinx community. Um, because Chuck Rocha and others who worked within the Bernie team in the 2020 cycle, you know, they they understood that, yes, you need to reach out to the communities of color in an intentional way. You just can't say Wall Street reform and Medicare for all. Like, that's not enough. So that was a testament to the fact that, you know, at least some people around Bernie and maybe Bernie himself, you know, understood that there were some shortcomings and he improved upon them. And and that's a great thing. But I do also think that, you know, the minimum wage fight is, is an example. One of the reasons why I was always sort of like... I like these ideas, Bernie, but I don't see how you're going to get it accomplished. I need the step-by-step plan. You know, Elizabeth Warren is giving me the plan with the bullet points and the appendix and the tabs. Like, she gave me the whole, you know, map on how she's going to get these things accomplished. And I just don't get that. Um, And I think the minimum wage fight was a moment where, you know, he could... I don't know what, what work he did behind the scenes to get Joe Manchin on board or Kirsten Cinema on board. Mm-hmm. But I think the fact that they couldn't, like, you know, they couldn't get him, that, that shows that there is, I mean, that, that's his big thing, right? I mean, like, 
I think he needs to be working the phones too. And as president, he would have been required to do that. And he can't just yell that it's the right thing. Um, and neither has, can his supporters. Yeah. Um, but I mean, all of that, I think, is water under the bridge. For me, it's not in this moment of pandemic. It's like, I mean, do I care that I got yelled at at Politicon? Not really. Like, it does put everything in a context, right? Like, yeah. The stuff yeah, that- like <laughs> y'all, I'm not even mad. Like, it was, but, right. it, but I think that moment, it was a moment where literally my editor walked up to me at the end of the panel and was like, you need to write about what is happening in the temp. Like, mm. what is, what is, what just happened is a, is a book. Yeah. And I was like, okay. <laughs> Well, I mean, it's a great book and, and people should definitely read it. But one of the things I also love about this book is it's, um, and, and it is about coalition building is that it's a deeply feminist text as well. Like, I love that aspect of it. Um, you know, because we know obviously that not just black women, but in these last few elections, black women have been the driving force between, behind any number of progressive movements and campaigns throughout history. Um, and obviously we just saw that again in Georgia and throughout. The United States. Um, and obviously, you know, we, and we saw, as we saw with Obama, you know, with the ascension of Kamala Harris to the vice presidency and now the most diverse cabinet in history, like there are going to be people who claim otherwise. But would you say that misogynoir remains kind of the major stumbling block in American progressive politics? Yeah. In America. <laughs> just like, it's Word. just full stop. You know what I mean? It's like, you're like, just America. Just America. <laughs> I mean, well, clear, well, no, it's not even just America, right? We just lived through Meghan Markle. It's global. True. It's global. True. True. Um, but I think, I think it's very interesting to watch Kamala Harris navigate a role that no woman has ever done before. And, and I think that the awareness of the fact that Massage Noir exists. And you mm-hmm. have to deal with it. Like, that's actually going to give her a leg up to most people in that position. Because I don't know historically, I mean, even generationally, like one generation ago, women of all backgrounds, mostly white, but I mean, because black women generally are 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 not like, well, you just have to deal with it. <laughs> like, I, But I have <laughs> talked to so many white women of just like one or two generations above me who are like, well, you know, what back in the day when I was 25, sexual harassment was just a thing you put up with, you know? And I'm like, what? No, you have to like, can't tolerate that, you know? So I just think that the awareness and the openness that we have to name it, to shame it, to change the way people are treating each other, the way people are behaving, the way we talk about women and Black women in positions of power. I mean, mm-hmm. it feels good to be able to call it out without hesitation. I mean, that, that feels like a shift. So I'm optimistic, even though everything is terrible. You know what I mean? Like I'm so, I'm, I'm, I'm generally an optimist. So I'm, I'm optimistic that we can, you know, press on. I mean, black women have survived worse than what we are going through. And so I always have to like, remember that I'm like, you know, oh, they're not being fair to Kamala, but like it was worse even when she was running for her first, you know, position. So mm-hmm. I think she's been through the fire and it's kind of cool to see somebody who's that aware and and will name those things. I mean, I would not be surprised if like if something were to happen and she just called that person out for like the sexism or the racism. Like and I don't know that we would have seen that in a female politician or like somebody in that type of position before. So 
That's a sign of progress. I'm trying to hold on to something, you know? You gotta find something. You gotta it's find hard. something. I mean, you you know, you gotta find the, the humor to keep from crying. Like I totally, totally yeah. get it. Yeah. Um we only have a little bit of time left. So before we let you go, people have this tendency, like to even if you reference like the hatred towards black women misogynoir, it's often dismissed as identity politics. But you did something really powerful and clever in telling your book The End of White Politics, because you essentially called a thing a thing which is mm-hmm. that politics, as we've known it, has always been identity politics, yeah. just centered around white identity, which ironically still involve intersecting identities, just mainstreamed as the default. But we still see this doubling down on both sides of the aisle to recruit the elusive, predominantly white swing voter. If you feel this voter is a myth and this approach is a mistake, who are you hoping to reach with this message? And do you think 2024 is enough time? Well, I... You know, I don't know. There's not a mythical white swing voter. Like, there's definitely voters in the suburbs that in 2016 voted for Donald Trump and in 2020 were like, "Ah, I can't. I'm not really for herd immunity. You know what I mean? And I think (laughs) (laughs) he said he told everybody to inject bleach. Like, I was like, who? And then 74 million people went outside and were like, that's a great idea. I was like, (laughs) anyway, not even like political, partisan. It's not even about policy. It's just like. Are you guys sure that that you're okay? You understand what he's saying, um, but I think that you know there's not that mythical swing voter. There is a black voter that's not being spoken to though. Mm. That swing voter is getting talked to every day, all the time, by all media, by everything we do. It is everything around us. It's the water that you know mm-hmm. in the in that fish allegory, and and so I think that. The future depends upon us realizing that and understanding that, no, like there there's more to this American democracy than just what white people think should happen. That's always been true, but now we have the numbers. So that that's the difference. And I think just kind of forcing the conversation, because I remember when I was writing the book and I remember when Iowa happened, remember Iowa and like mm-hmm. the app broke and we didn't know like what was happening and everybody was mad at Iowa because they screwed the Iowa caucus up and we hadn't been like paying attention all the way leading up to that and didn't know anything. <laughs> like it was really traumatic, I would say. Um, But I remember like the next day kind of thinking through like what I was going to say about it. And I was like, this is the perfect example of systemic racism if I've ever seen one. Why are we investing all this money into Iowa to convince mostly white people who the best candidate to represent all of us is? That is stupid. So we should not do that anymore. And here's a really good moment to be like, yeah, maybe we should look outside of Iowa and New Hampshire, you know, in terms of the first couple of states that are going to set the sort of momentum for who could be the Democratic nominee. That just doesn't make sense to me. So I think... You just got to call it out more. I remember Mm -hmm. when I said those things, it was a shocked sort of response from anchors and fellow panelists. But I think in hindsight, post-insurrection, most people don't think that I was like, you know, jumping the shark in any way. (laughs) You know, I think I was being relatively mild. (laughs) You're being kind. kind. I was being so mild. (laughs) 
<laughs> well, certainly not. Like, it has been amazing to have you with us on its lit today and have this conversation. We could talk about it forever. Uh, before I let you go, I can't go without mentioning that um, it's been amazing to watch your journey. Yes. Uh, for those Thank listening, you. I used to edit Zerlina yes. 10,000 years ago at a now defunct <laughs> Black website that no longer exists. So it's no point in naming it. But. <laughs> <laughs> but it I was a journey girl no it was it's been a journey and it's been I started blogging for no money and then I started you were the like one of the very first editors where I was getting paid to write that was a big moment yes and I just kept going I just kept you going did. you kept and you going. kept going also like yes. you're still going as well <laughs> we made Running it girl things. yes we, survived. we made it we survived that's what, that's what I was trying to say I was like no we made it we're going it's exciting to be part of your journey and thank you for allowing us to be part of your journey like it was just an amazing conversation yes thank you thank you so much for having me this was so fun The Root Presents It's Lit is produced by myself, Maisha Kai, and Michaela Heck. Our sound engineer is Ryan Allen. Special thanks to Sarah Chishti. If you like the show and you want to help us out, please give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. It really helps other people find the show. If you have any thoughts or feedback, you can find me on Twitter at Black Snob or on Instagram at Belton Danielle. And you can find me at Maisha on Twitter. That's M-A-I-Y-S-H-A and at Maisha Kai on Instagram. And before we go, we always like to talk a little bit about what we're currently reading. Maisha, what are you into these days? Um, I am reading The Secret Lives of Church Ladies. I am overdue in reading this book by Disha Filia. It's amazing. Um, It's a collection of short stories. We're going to be talking to Disha soon, so I'm not going to spoil anything. But, ooh, yes. (laughs) This is one of those woo-child books. Um, And... Deisha's been getting a ton of awards recognition. It's a best-selling book, and I have to say it was all really well-deserved. What are you into these days? Well, you know, I've heard it mentioned so many times in our podcast now that I was just like, you know what? I'm going to try to reread Toni Morrison's Beloved because I haven't read it Ooh. since college. <laughs> and wow, it is quite the undertaking. I don't know, either I was a super genius baby at 19 <laughs> or I just became dumber as I got older, but I'm just like, wow, wow. Or maybe, maybe it's just that at that age, we're sponges and we're searching. I think of all the stuff I used to read in college, you know, that like all this like deep black feminist theory that I still carry with me as like ethos. But like when yeah. I try to read it now, I'm like, oh, my God. Yeah, my brain is just like mm. somehow reading, writing and editing blogs for 20 years. That might do it. You know, doesn't doesn't keep your brain quite in sh- the shape that it needs to tackle Toni Morrison. But I'm doing it. All right, then. I'm getting it done. <laughs> and that's it for this week. Thanks so much for listening and we'll see you next week. In the meantime, keep it lit. <laughs> <laughs>